And now, here's your host, Alessandra Torrezani. Sophie Barron, did I say Barron right? I just want to make sure I say everything perfectly with you because you are just the sweetest, most like loving human. You are the epitome of a sunflower and sunshine in one. And I am so happy. I can't believe that this is the first time um, we're meeting face to face because I don't know about you, but I think when I talk to people so many times and, you know, on the phone or hearing their voice or watching their social media, I feel like I know them so well. So when people do say this is the first time we've met in person or online, I'm I'm shook to the core because I cannot believe it. I feel like I know everything about you. So I'm so confused. I'm like, what? I've never seen you in person. This is so crazy. You know? Oh, it's wild. Oh I feel gosh. like I've known you for so long and I know your voice so well from like the hours we spent together yeah. in the metaverse. Yes. So it's just an honor to be here and see you. I feel like I know everything about your life and I can't wait for this conversation. Oh, I'm so excited to be having a conversation with the conversationalist. Um, we have so much to get into. You have done like the amount of things that you have done in such a young age is absolutely remarkable to me. But it I'm sorry, to, look who's talking. Yeah, but that's very sweet of you. But you literally, I think that, uh, I'll, let me put it this way. The things that you have done for other people at such a young age, you know, yeah, sure. I've done, I've done acting and I've done stuff like that. But I think that the grand scheme of humanity and the grand scheme of like generation, right? What you have done for Gen Z is so remarkable. And and how, is this something that's always been inside you where you have been such a powerhouse where you've wanted to just change the world? Well, first of all, that's the nicest thing anyone's ever said to me. So thank Oh my you. God. <laughs> um, I don't deserve half the things you just yes, said. Yes, you but do. I, I'm trying. <laughs> I'm trying. And I think it's actually ironic. The the things that I'm doing now that I think make me who I am were yeah. actually the opposite growing up. I think really, I, I felt the opposite of powerful. I felt voiceless growing up. And so I think a part of me now wants to rewrite the story and to make sure that no other young person has right. to experience some of the things I went through. But it's interesting how when you look back on it, I don't think I was always this way. But I think because of the things I went through, I wanted to make a difference. Why did you feel so voiceless? Yeah. So I was born and raised in Wichita, Kansas. Oh my gosh, the Dorothy. Dorothy, we're not in Kansas I am anymore. Dorothy. Oh my God. <laughs> oh my gosh, I've never heard that one before. <laughs> I, I really felt like Dorothy reincarnated. But yeah. in a way, I was always different from a lot of my friends. I oh. learned pretty early on that no matter how hard I tried to fit in, I was always going to be the different kid. Hmm. I was the only Jewish kid in my entire grade wow. and pretty much my entire school. Right, right. And so that that made me feel like I was labeled. I was cast outside of, you know, the the typical friend groups and I just wanted to fit in, but I was I was really made to feel a lot of shame around my identity. And I think mm. because of that shame, 
I, I looked inward and I felt like I didn't have a voice. I thought right. that in order to have a voice, I needed to be completely accepted and liked by everyone yeah. and doing well, all the all things. we all want to be and, normal, right? Like that's what it comes down to, especially in school. Like who wants to be different? Who wants to be sure. something else? You know, you want to wear the, the clothes that the popular girls are wearing. You want to listen to the music that the cool kids are listening totally. to. Like, Who you know, wants to challenge the status quo? It's like high school musical. No one wants to be the different one. Right. So. Exactly. But you know, what's so funny to me is like, here I'm hearing you were the only, you know, person who, you know, uh, was of Jewish, you know, religion in your school and probably your town. For me, you know, even though by blood, my mother's side of the family is Jewish, we were raised Catholic, but everyone I went to school with was all Jewish. And it was every wow. bar mitzvah and bat mitzvah. And I remember being so mad. I would be like, mom, everyone has a bat mitzvah. They have a bar mitzvah. I'm not getting the cash these kids are getting. I'm not getting the parties these kids are coming. So here we are like a complete opposite world. Like if you would have come to LA, you would have been just like queen. Because for me, I felt like, um, mom, where's my, you know, money? Like, let's put that in the bank. You know what I mean? Where's my, like, I remember the performances that people would have like at their bar mitzvahs and these music artists. And I was like, this is the most wild thing oh my that gosh. ever happened to me. <laughs> it's like that old MTV show, my my super sweet sixteen. Um, it's so interesting that we had someone on that opposite. show. Yeah, I actually knew yeah. someone who was on that show. She was way younger than I was, but we actually knew who we actually knew her. And my friend was actually asked to be one of the models, like in her in quote unquote fashion show. It was it was Ed Hardy's daughter. I'll never forget this. And my friend oh Sander my was asked, and he was like, "It's so weird because like we're friends with her, but she wants me to do this, and like I guess I'll do it." I was like, "Yeah, you're older. Like they want the older twenty year old, you know." <laughs> That's so wild. That was a great show. I, I would have never guessed that. Such a good show. <laughs> but I didn't realize that you and I had such similar stories, but in yeah. completely different environments. Yeah. You had the opposite of me. Whereas all my friends were Christian and Catholic and going to Young Life after school. And I was like the only one who couldn't go. And I just wanted to be like everyone else. So yeah. for you, Al, how, how did you find your people? Or did you? You know, I feel like I fit, you know, I get asked this question a lot. I get asked, like, were you ever bullied in school? That was a question that I used to get asked a lot, like, when I first started talking. As I think about, I would say, about 10 years ago, that was the, the hot topic question that was always asked in interviews. And, you know, I have to say, yes, there was a moment where I was bullied, and then there was a moment where I was not, where I was actually really lucky to have a best friend where in my school, it was a very small school. We had about 50 kids a grade. So for us, like we were all super nurtured and taken care of and everyone kind of was on the same level. Like it was not weird. The only time that I felt bullied and I felt like an outcast was by my teachers, um, which was really mm -hmm. wild to me because um, I'm the biggest fan of teachers and my a lot of my family are teachers. So, um, But it was sp some specific ones because they wouldn't allow me to leave class to go to auditions or to go shoot TV shows or movies 
or go away and have these experiences. And they would shame me because, you know, I'll never forget this one dance teacher that I had in my high school. Like I think about her all the time, which is crazy because I shouldn't. Like I haven't seen her since I was 15. Um, but I think about her all the time because she got mad at me because I was supposed to be there for a rehearsal, even though I knew the dance, I knew everything perfectly. And I had asked ahead of time, I had to go and, and do this huge audition for this TV show. And she kicked me out of dance because I didn't show up for this one rehearsal where it was like I, I had committed and I showed up so much and that was the one thing that I asked for. And I just remember being like shamed out of like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be an actress. Like, and they would say to me, you have to choose, is it school or is it this? So I ended up leaving school early, actually. I ended up getting my high school proficiency exam and starting junior college online because I just couldn't, they, they wouldn't let me do what I wanted to do. And that was my passion. And instead of nurturing a child and being like, wow, this is amazing that they know what they want at such a young age, I was like totally put down because of it. Um, and that sticks with me. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny, like, I can laugh about it now, right? And I can have this conversation and be like, oh, well, look at what I've done. Ha, ha, ha. You know what I mean? But here I am at 34 years old and it still affects me. And I still think about that teacher um, and how I was put in a position of choosing, you know, what to do when dance was my, my huge passion as well. You know, so to answer your question, like, I don't know, I don't, I think that, yes, we have similar stories, you know, but I think that for me, the the insecurity and the bullying and the upsetness that I had as a child yeah. actually came from a different out, outlook, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So- for and I sure. think we were really lucky. This the school that we went to is like, you know, there were Jewish kids, there were Christian kids, there were Muslim kids, there were we had Scientologists in our school. Like we had literally everything. So I felt like it never felt um like that. I just was always so jealous because I was always like, oh my God, I want the cool parties, you know? Um, but it was, sure. it is, I I can I can understand and I can I can relate to where you came from. Um, in that sense of, of the feeling, the loneliness and feeling like an outcast and like, why can't I just be an in quote unquote normal kid in school that the teachers treat me like a normal child, you know? Um, totally. and it's, and it's, yeah, and it's, it's tough, you know? And so I don't know even, it's funny to go back cause I don't even know what I did differently or what I, what I did to get through it. Maybe I, pushed it all down and that's why it's coming out now at 34 years old on an interview with you, sure. uh, you which know. is totally normal and natural yeah. right I think it's so real to like completely be at odds with your inner child totally. and unpacking the things that happened to you at a young age and I think it's it's so reaffirming to hear you say that you know where you are now you have completely leaned in to who you right. are and I, I'm sure so many people, including me, can relate to that feeling where someone made you feel like you had to choose. Yes. I felt like that all the time. It was like, you can either be at the, the varsity volleyball tournament, or you can go honor Yom Kippur, and you have a choice. You have if a you choice. choose Yom Kippur, you're going to be benched. Right. But if you choose the volleyball tournament, you're not aligning with your values. Right. And it would be the same with the homecoming dance and the football games, but with Shabbat dinner and constantly having to feel like I had to totally pick and choose because Shabbat was my Friday identity. Night and that's when all like football games were and stuff. And it was your family, did you feel a lot of pressure from your family? Not at all. 
I, I mean, I, I obviously when it. I was a kid, I was, I was forced, you know, right, sometimes right. to pick the Shabbat dinner over sure. the football game. And I think that made me resent my identity. Right. But I think at the same time, I, I just didn't even know really what it meant to be Jewish at a young age because there was no one to look to right. apart from my family. And so right. I think that was a fundamental part of, you know, why I am the way I am today yeah. and why I wanted to make sure that no other young person out there ever had to feel alone in their experiences and to have people to process the world with when you can be stuck in an echo chamber in your school, in your community, on social media. And so it led me to Did you talk to your parents about it when you were younger? Did you you feel that close relationship? Well, it's not even close relationship because we all, you know, relationships with our family that are close and still there's certain topics that are, you know, a little too uncomfortable at that age. I will say my parents always made me feel like I could share what I was experiencing, right. but I don't even know if I had the emotional maturity no. to process it outside of, of rebelling. Yeah. You know, for me, I just wanted to fit in. So I would be so upset when they wouldn't let me go to homecoming or, you know, if I was with a friend after school, I would have their parents get me a cheeseburger off the menu because I knew that they had no idea it wasn't kosher. My parents would eat me a lot for it. So I think I just, I was, I wanted to rebel. I think I just wanted to fit in. And I think so much of my life, I wanted to conform and be that Cheerio in a world of Fruit Loops. Yeah. But I think throughout my life, I've learned that the part of myself that I so resented for most of my life was actually the thing that would make me who I am the most and help me live my most authentic life. So it was an interesting upbringing. What was the the move, you know, for you? Like, did you have that 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 feeling inside where you're like, I want to see a new world. I want to go to the big city. Like, did you have big city dreams? Is that kind of how you got to to Philly? Of course I did. I, as soon as graduation came, I sprinted down that yellow brick road to the University of Pennsylvania. And I was so ready to be surrounded by different people. I was so ready to like get outside of that Midwest bubble that was so sheltering. Right. And at, at Penn, I actually started connecting with all the Jewish kids. I was so excited to be around other Jews. So I joined the Jewish acapella group, the Jewish sority. I even had a Jewish boyfriend. My parents were oh my god, they were so happy. And and I think that was where my moment came because Mm -hmm. even though you felt you felt my younger self wanted, I felt seen. I felt like I belonged. And one day I was walking through campus, just minding my own business, and I realized that every single person on campus was doing the exact same thing as I was, but with their respective identity groups. Mm. And I had this moment where I was thinking, okay, so yes, I belong, but why am I only surrounding myself with people who are like me? Right. And I think that's when I realized that I had actually taken for granted my experience growing up in Wichita, where I was surrounded by people who were of different faiths, different races, different cultures, even different geographic locations. And that was my moment where I realized, okay, I've got to do something about this because everyone's doing it just like me, but how are we ever going to grow if we just stay inside of our groups? Right. And so that was really my, my big light bulb moment. What year did you graduate high school? 2013. So I'm trying to think like in the world, like where were we in the world with, you know, the crisis of everything that's going on. Obviously yeah. now, Obama just got elected just president. Was. Yeah. Um, so that's wow. Interesting. So 
it's just, it's, it's so, it's so, I, I, I get curious about when people graduate high school because I think high school is such a specific time, right? And there's so many monumental events. So like for me, when totally. I was in middle school and high school, it was 9-11 and then we went to war, right? So like that was obviously a huge monumental event for us in that high school. I can't imagine what it would be like being in high school now, you know, with the pandemic now two years in and all of this going on, like, what that would have been like. My cousin graduated college in, totally. you know, during the pandemic over Zoom. It's just so bizarre to me. Um, so that's, I'm always so curious. So it's not about an age thing. I always, I'm just so curious, like where the world was yeah. in 2013. And it's interesting to hear where you were yeah. in 2013, yeah. you know? Yeah. We all experience the world so differently. Like, so I am like, oh my, where was I in, 20, in 2013? What was I doing? I don't want to know. I don't want to know what I was doing. But no, and it's so great that I think a lot of people find that experience. I, you know, it's, here's a, a fun fact for you. Um, my dad went to the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School of Business uh, for graduate school. We love it. And so I always, um, that was the top college that I thought I was going to be going to, the top university, um, that or MIT. Um, so I have all sorts of UPenn uh, memorabilia uh, that was collected when I was younger, and I never fulfilled that dream for my father. But um, but I, <laughs> but I will say, um, did you did you I feel the it. pressure to fulfill that? Oh fuck yeah! Like oh yeah, yeah, definitely. I think more of not not even Pennsylvania, honestly, more the pressure of MIT. But I came out singing and dancing, so I think they didn't really have another choice. Um, but I always thought, you know, well, if I went back to school, that would be the school that I went to. And and my husband's yeah mother side of the family, they're all from Philly. Um, so I've wow. gotten to spend a little time there as well. And I got to tour the school and it was it was just so great. But I think, you know, one thing that I, I didn't get to experience that I love hearing other people's stories and, and you've started that out is, you know, I never got to have a a traditional college experience. I didn't go to, you know, college and, or university or, you know, get to go away for me at that time of my life. I was shooting TV shows and I was living in Vancouver at the time. And so like, it was very different. Like that was my college experience, you know, um, and to each their own, we're all very different. But I think that it's really cool to hear that that's where you found yourself and I think a lot of you're right like that's why it's so brilliant that you jumped on this because I think a lot of people that I've spoken to I mean I would say 99% of them all did find themselves in college that's when they found their voice um, the ones that were voiceless especially which was pretty much all of us right like we were voiceless when we were young for sure and I and think that's so on great. the flip side Al like hearing your story I, I am so amazed by you and that you were willing to take that other road that diverged in the wood and like fully take the non-traditional path to follow your passions. Because I think most of us who choose the traditional are so goddamn afraid yeah. to actually fully put ourselves out there. Right. And so I would have never been able to have the courage to do that. And well, so I have to you're amazing. You, I don't think it was courage. I think it was stupidity of not knowing any different. <laughs> Really? I think it was just well, like I take being it as naive a very... and just going, well, whatever, like, I'm just going to do it. And, and not realizing other pressures that came with that. But that was you choosing yourself. Yeah. And yeah, so many of us are afraid to do that. So I just wanted to say, oh, that's really I really appreciate that. I mean, it, it's, 
it's it's it yeah i mean it's cool it, it's funny i don't i don't know any different and so when you were in college is that when you started like this idea of like i'm going to start this company called the conversationalist and i'm going to start interviewing people and be the voice for gen z for the voiceless yes but it started somewhere else first oh so after i had that big realization I finally felt like I had the agency to do something about it. Yeah. Growing up in Wichita, I felt like in order to be a leader, you had to be elected to be one. Mm -hmm. I ran for class president every year. I auditioned for the lead in the musical every year. Oh. I put myself out there to the 10th degree and never got that traditional role. Wow. But what it taught me is that I didn't need anyone else's permission oh. to have a voice and to be a leader. Right. So when I got to Penn and I realized that this was happening around me, I finally felt distance from that life in Kansas where I could finally make a difference and go for it because right. no one else needed to give me that permission. So I started thinking about what I could do to try to change that culture. And that was a big issue to address the fact that people are not, you know, breaking outside of their own friend groups right. and cultures and communities. Yep. So I decided to start a club on my campus. I thought that was a great way to start yep. making an impact. I'm going to start something. So I started this club called Table Talk. Oh. And the whole premise was to bring people together, as I'm sure you can guess, around tables and other furniture, like inflatable couches and oh my God, fun cute. events. And and we put them all around campus and we tried to bring people together outside of their friend groups just to talk and oh, connect. I love that. And so that was phase one, table talk. It started this group, started impacting the local pen community, bringing people together, having these conversations, but really just to make friends. They weren't about serious, hard hitting issues. We just wanted to break outside of those silos. So I started talking. You were creating a community. Totally. So I started I started talking to some of my friends at other schools and they started saying, Sophie, me too. I feel, I feel the exact same way. I'm only hanging out with the people who are like me. No one on my campus talks to anyone after freshman year. Right. And so I started to spread table talk to other campuses and other communities. Wow. And so bef before I knew it, I had spread table talk to 80 college and high school. Oh campuses. my gosh, Sophie. Wow. So that was, that was phase one, just trying to get people outside of their comfort zones, outside of their friend groups to meet people they wouldn't otherwise meet. So that was my first response. What was one of the most like impactful stories that you ever heard? Like, I bet a mm. lot of people just really opened up because they felt comfortable and felt just heard, you know? Totally. I think since we're on the emotional support pod, this connects to mental health. My, my freshman year at Penn, one of my closest friends committed suicide. Wow. And it was the first time that I think and I was really this struggled. That you met at University of Pennsylvania? Wow. Yes, this was wow. my friend. She was on the track and field team. Um, yes. wow. And it was really, really disheartening to see the reaction from the university and the people around us who wouldn't talk about it. Mm. There was not a single space to go to outside You're of the, the counseling services oh to gosh. bring people together and have a dialogue around mental health. Right. And so this is where... I, I started thinking about... I mean, this is an Ivy League school with so much money. Like, you would think that they would have the most incredible resources and be there at the... And that's... It just shows how, you know, 
A, how far we've come and B, how far we need to go, you know, and how important it is community, community really is like, like with peer to peer support. Thousand percent. And some 17 student deaths later, the university is finally dealing with it. But this was really the first of the tip of the iceberg. And so I felt that there was no space on campus to openly have a dialogue around mental health. And so I decided to reach out to every mental health student group on campus, Mm -hmm. sit down with their leaders and say, hey, let's put on an event where we just open up our doors, we offer free food, and we're going to put people in groups and we're going to talk about our mental health. And we created a list of questions. We essentially contacted people across campus from all different walks of life and brought some 50 to 80 some people together to sit down and discuss mental health on campus. And so I think seeing people for the first time get vulnerable. I mean, this is pre clubhouse. This is pre mental health becoming more normalized. This is really when it was so taboo seeing people open up and talk to strangers and also people they knew and people from across campus, they would have never interacted with and seeing them open up about their mental health struggles I think was so impactful to was me. Was this the first time that you really addressed mental health issues like in general in your life? Because I can imagine there probably wasn't, you know, like anything as shocking as that, you know, that happened to your friend. Very sorry, you know, back at home. I mean, maybe there was, but this, it's such a monumental moment of your life, you know, too. I feel like 19, 20, I, 21, yes. it's just like power. I, I, I will say yes. I mean, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole, but I actually yeah. had another friend who died by suicide in high school. Wow. And I think seeing wow. my high school completely ignore the situation, didn't even address it. The principal stood up one day and essentially just said, this happened and we're not going to talk about it. And we all moved on with our lives. Wow. We're, we're not going to have a memorial. Yeah. We're not going to have a service. Like oh it, it was really shocking to me. But yeah. back in the day, there was... There was only so much we could do. Again, high school, voiceless, didn't really know who I was. So I think when this happened in college, that was really the breaking point where I realized this isn't just a distant concept that you see on Glee or across the media. Like it was so, it was so close to home. And I think that was the first time I started to even delve into my own mental health journey. And I, I think I found that through providing that space for others. Oh my gosh. And thank God, you know, in a way that you've had that experience to then bring it to the University of Pennsylvania and then help all those people out. I, I mean, I, I just, it, that was something that never, I can't remember anything um, like of kids our age that had, had you know, died by suicide and, and taken, you know, life. I, I, I don't remember that, but I remember hearing about it from other schools and I can't imagine what, the pressure would be like to be a student and be involved in all of that, to be a teacher, to be a principal, to be a parent, like the conversation would be just heartbreaking. You know, it would be heartbreaking. Totally. For you, what was your earliest memory of having an actual dialogue about your mental health? Oh, about mental health? I mean, I started when I was five years old. (laughs) Like, yeah. You remember having conversations about it at five? Yeah, because it was, because I was, um, I, when I was diagnosed, I wasn't diagnosed with bipolar disorder till I was about 21, 22. But when I was, you know, two years old, there were signs when I was five year old, five years old, I had a huge sign where I couldn't cross thresholds. I was such a perfectionist. 
I would have blackouts, um, you know, lots of stuff. So my mom put me into hypnotherapy at five years old, put me into therapy. So, I mean, did I know what mental health the definition was at five years old? Absolutely not. But did I know what feelings were and emotions were? Yes. So I, so I mm -hmm. did have that conversation at a young age, but I, you know, at 15, I was put on antidepressants and that backfired and made it worse, you know? So it was very much around me a lot. Yeah. I never experienced um, suicide until I was older with, with people around me. Um, I can't imagine what it would have been like in high school to experience that. Or to be fair, maybe I did experience it and I blocked it out and I can't remember because it wasn't someone that was so close to me. You know, I, I don't know, yeah. but I remember there was one particular school that was down the street. It was another private school and they were infamously known for a child a year taking their own life. Um, and I just remember being like, that's the most insane thing I've ever heard. Like that doesn't happen. But then now you hear stories all the time and here you are in Wichita, Kansas, and this happens, you know what I mean? It can happen anywhere in the world. It doesn't discriminate, you know, mental health, you know? Um, so, wow. So you were in college, you fit, you come up with table talk and that was the first kind of conversationalist, right? That, that happened. And then what happened? I bet people were just freaking out over table talk and loving every minute of it and wanting more. You're in 80 schools. Where do you go from there? So from there, we fast forward to 2016. And for me, the biggest highlight of 2016 was the very contentious presidential election. Yes. And on my campus, as I'm sure you can assume, the echo chamber was tightening. Mm. It was enclosing. It felt suffocating at times because only one viewpoint was predominantly out there on campus. Ah. And there was no space to have dialogue from all points of view. Really? And anytime someone would share something on Facebook, on Instagram, it would be of the tone, if you vote for Trump, unfriend me. If you represent any value or any issue that Trump stands for, I want you as far away from me as humanly mm. possible. Wow. And I think that was the first time where I diagnosed the issue of the echo chamber beyond just the fact that we don't talk to people who have different backgrounds than uh -huh. us. Right. And there was actually a deeper issue, a deeper seated issue about the fact that we don't have conversations about real hard hitting issues where we actually see people who all see it differently. Right. And so that was really a moment for me that defined the conversationalist starting. Mm. So there was a moment, I was sitting in a class, a finance class, if you will, <laughs> my, my junior year, and this was the night before the election. Wow. And our professor had the audacity to tell our class who to vote for. He was essentially asserting his views on the class and telling us that if we don't vote for X candidate, in this case, X equals Hillary, we are all doing a disservice to our country. And wow, in that moment, I can't believe that. I mean, I guess I don't know enough about universities, but I am shocked that a professor would give, I thought they don't give opinions for anything like on, on personal other than, but I don't know. What do I know? Wow. I thought, th I thought the same thing. So in that moment, I don't know what it was, but it caused me to physically stand up out of my chair and exit the classroom. Wow. And I think that moment for me really defined this journey because what did I do next? I left the classroom and I took pen to paper. Oh. I started for the first time 
actually using my voice to advocate about something I felt so passionately about. And I started comprising an article about why our generation needs to break open these echo chambers yesterday. Right. Because we have to find a way to coexist. Right. And it's going to be our generation to do that. And so little did I know that that thought piece actually got turned into an article that got published by the Huffington Post. Oh my and gosh. that was the spark. That was it. That was the moment that led me to start the Conversationalist to be a platform, a community, a destination for Gen Z to have these hard-hitting conversations, but to see these issues from multiple points right. of view. Right. Now, did you, I assume, get a lot of backlash for this? So at the time, I felt that the message was pretty unifying. I, mean, I, I didn't I think get it's a lot of backlash. Unifying. I just wondered because I feel like so many people were like, it's A or it's B. And, you know, I have family that was on both sides, more on Hillary's side, but but I have had family members that were on the other side. And it caused a riff in family and it caused a riff in, in a lot of friendships and stuff like that. And, you know, I'm never going to be like, you're a terrible person if you don't do X, Y, and Z. But I feel like you do. We have a right to have a voice and we have a right to speak it. But it's not my choice to put down your throat what what you should or shouldn't be doing. Or let me say this. I, I can assert my opinion, but I don't want to force you to do something that you don't believe in. And I think that we do need to have this conversation and things don't need to be shut down. I think that it's only fair. Um, and I think that that's, that's true for everything. If you want to talk about mental health, I have a lot of family members that are like, nah, I don't really want to talk about your bipolar disorder. And it's like, no, 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 let's have this conversation. Like, it, it, now, I, I'm not going to be like, it is a real thing and you guys are all wrong. But like, I want to hear why you guys don't believe it's not a real thing, you know? So For you're sure. right. It is just having that open dialogue where it's, you know, I was, I was on the debate team. So I'm someone who really believes in debating. <laughs> Like, love it. And I, love I almost choose like the wrong side just so I can like be able to debate and be an asshole and be an Italian and be loud. Um, but I, I think amazing. that what that but what you're doing is creating a trusted environment where people can speak from the other side because there are two sides to every story and then there's a third side. You know what I mean? Like, and I think that's just the truth of it all. Completely, and a fourth, and a fifth, and a sixth. Yeah. And I think at the time. Everyone was so cautious and everyone was yeah. tiptoeing and walking on eggshells that no one wanted to say anything at all. Right. And so I think I viewed that piece almost as like the moment when the Titanic hit the iceberg, right? Or the election signified the moment where we started to see cracks in the ability to see eye to eye and come together. And right. so I think where we are now, we've completely separated the two pieces of the iceberg and we're so far away from one another. And I'm trying to rope them back together yeah. and try to get people just to come to the table. And I think at the time, I, I don't think I received a lot of backlash because the notion of dialogue and coming together was palatable for right. everyone. Right. Who wouldn't want to have a dialogue and actually learn and come together. And I think over time, as the divide deepens, people are less and less willing to come to the table. And what have you found like, so the article came out and after that, 
Is that when you decided to go out with a microphone and start interviewing and talking to people? So not quite. So <laughs> the the articles published, I finish out my college career. I mean, because that's wild that you were at the Huffington Post. I mean, that's just so cool. Wild. I it was really the craziest moment because I found that using my voice was actually a good thing. Yeah. For so long, I felt like I shouldn't speak up. I shouldn't say what's on my mind. And so after this, I decided to conduct some research. I thought, okay, I want to do something different. I want to take table talk to the next level, but I don't want to create something just to create it. I want to make an impact with what people actually want and need. Right. So I surveyed a ton of Gen Zers across the country and everyone also who has an impact on Gen Z, Uh whether it's a college counselor, a principal, uh, an educator, a parent, everyone who has a touch point around the Gen Z experience. And I wanted to understand why our generation is so afraid to talk to each other Mm. and why we're struggling to have these conversations. And the two biggest findings from that study was that one, we feel like we don't know enough about these hard issues. So we don't know how to talk about them. And oftentimes we don't say anything at all. And B, we don't actually have a place to go to talk about them. So we just talk in our friend groups, in our group chats, at our dinner tables, but there wasn't a place to do it. So- I decided to turn those insights into a platform that would combine the two. So we started out as a multimedia content platform, articles, podcasts, videos, all around these difficult topics to have conversations and let people speak their voices. So we started with mental health. That was the first topic we covered and people started sharing their opinions, their stories, their experiences. And it was cool, but it didn't create dialogue. You know, really, I, I don't even feel like I have enough time to read anymore. Right. So people, whether they were consuming the content or not, who was to say that they were actually going and starting a conversation about it? So through COVID, this was the perfect moment in a weird way to say that to actually pivot and create what people actually wanted and needed, which was community. Right. So we built our community on this app kind of like Discord mixed with Clubhouse, mixed with Slack. It's called Geneva. And it was an amazing place to bring people together and actually have a space where people could talk all day long about any and every issue that matters to them. Oh my gosh. So that was really, that was phase two. So we launched our community. We have these amazing people in there talking all day long about everything that's going on in the world. And this is during the craziest time that, you know, our generation has lived through. And so- the community was really an incredible place to explore what the conversationalist could become. Right. And so long story short, we're headed out of the pandemic now and what people need more than ever is face-to-face communication. Yeah. And so we wanted to create a platform to actually show people that these conversations are possible. So we decided to launch a talk show. Right. So our vision has been to launch POVs, points of view I with the it. Z for Gen Z. Yep. And we wanted to create a place where we're actually bringing people together on camera, in person, to have these hard-hitting discussions face-to-face. So we just filmed our pilot Yay! in LA, and we had we had a conversation about abortion in which I bring together four Gen Zers, two who think abortion is a human right, and two who do not. And we sit down and we hash it out. It's heated. It's controversial. But it sure as hell is unifying to see people come together and come to the table and respect one another and see eye to eye. Well, I think so that that's, that's the most important that's the show. part. It's about respecting one another. And you may not, totally. you know, 
you may not respect someone's choice on being, you know, pro-choice, you know, or whatever it may be, whatever the topic is, right? But you can respect them as a human that they have a voice, that they they are allowed to share, that we're all equal and we're all one. Has there been exactly. something that has been so controversial and so heated where you're like, oh shit, like we can't even go further than this? All the time, every day. <laughs> um it's it's so like how do you balance without giving a specific without giving a specific topic i think our biggest issue is where different people draw the line for us we have our own guidelines we have our own definitions of free speech and hate speech Uh but i think for some their definition of hate speech is much narrow-minded much more narrow-minded than ours and i think because of cancel culture and because of the things we've been talking about today, a lot of people don't feel that there are issues that should be talked about universally. And so I think that's been hard for us, especially when it comes to issues connected to our identities. We even had a conversation about what's happening in Texas right now with transgender children potentially being profiled as having undergone child abuse. And Governor Abbott wrote a letter to essentially start addressing that in his community and in order to facilitate a dialogue we wanted to put all the facts on the table give people context and share their opinions on what's going on and i think there's always a tricky line to draw between what is actually happening in the world and especially in the government in texas it's happening do we talk about it or is this going to cause more harm to transgender individuals than good by shedding light on it. And so I think the line can be super fickle when it comes to issues of transphobia and racism, because I think things can be super misconstrued, even if they're had with the best of intentions. So I would say those are, those are the tricky parts. And that's really hard. And where do you, you know, what is, I mean, Sophia, is this you saying that you're running for governor? Like, I mean, what's going to happen right now? Like, what is the, what's the, what's the goal with all of this? Because I think that what you're doing is super important. And I think that it's great. It's not, I think, I know that it's great because conversations need to be had especially with younger generations, because sometimes I I like to say I give up on other generations on the older, right? Because we're all set in stone and it is what it is. But I think that we, we really need to, I, I, let let me put it this way. Like, you know, I want to have kids and like, I want my kids to be able to feel not, not even safe because nothing's really safe, but feel like there are people out there that are, you know, trusting and that that have their back and that they can have you know a voice because I never felt like I couldn't say anything about mental health for instance or about life until you know I was in the business and then I started talking about bipolar disorder and I had you know executives and and bigger people say oh no 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 don't do that you're going to be labeled x y and z that was the only time I never felt like I could use a voice to be strong and be powerful. Um, mm. And so I want my, you know, future children, you know, whatever that is, like to feel that they have that, you know, and what you're doing is providing that for 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 other new generations coming forward. You know, after you have the this pilot that becomes a show, it becomes a success, you know, do you see yourself getting into government? Do you see yourself getting into politics and kind of doing that way? Or do you see it more staying in the entertainment side to be the voice of the entertainment? 
That was a long-winded way to get to that question. (laughs) First of all, Al, I admire that so much about you that you're building the world that you want future generations and your future children to be able to exist in in a way where they can talk about important issues and mental health. And that's what I love about you. And I think I feel the exact same way. I think I'm trying to create a place that I so wish I had and I still wish I have. Um, which I could have more often because I'm still afraid to share my opinions on certain topics. I don't think that will ever go away, but I think creating a destination for people to actually feel comfortable to share their opinions without fear of judgment is the goal. And so I am going to stay probably as far away from government as possible. (laughs) I just don't think that's the path for me. I, I just feel like there's a way to make more of a direct impact on this generation and I see the work that we're doing now as planting seeds so that when they are old enough to run for office take these larger positions and platforms in the world that they will have the skill set to navigate these hard conversations in a way that will foster more unity more tolerance and more understanding for people whose lived experiences differ from our own so at the end of the day our platform I feel is a vessel yeah. It, it's it's a movement, right. it's a way of life that we want people to adopt. So we just want to expose people to views and experiences and opinions and people outside of their own echo chambers so they can start to use their voices to speak up about what matters to them. What would you what would you say to like a Gen Z or I guess not even Gen Z because you you do talk to the Gen Z all the time, you know? So what would you say to the older generation like some words of advice or something that you would ask of them, you know, whether it be like you want them to be more open in conversation, whether you want them to be, you know, ask the questions, like what is something that you wish um, the older generation would, would, would bring to the conversation? That's such a great question. I, I would want other and older generations to know that when they enter a conversation with a Gen Zer, someone from our generation, listen to us with the same fiery passion that you feel for being heard. And I think if we can foster that energy that goes both ways, we will be way more likely to listen to the older generations and older generations will be much more understanding and tolerant of ours. And I think oftentimes we come in with so many preconceived notions, older generations get a bad rep, Gen Z has a bad rep, but I think there's just, again, there's that distance. And the more that we can merge those icebergs back together and bring people to the same table with the notion of respect and understanding, that I think would heal, it would heal the generational divide. Oh, I love that. I love that. It's all about healing the generational divide. I really, truly believe that because I remember how frustrating it was when I was, you know, 15 years old or 18 years old or 22 years old and, you know, the generation above me and older wouldn't listen to me and would dismiss me and um, 
to not feel like you're being heard because you're young and you don't have the experience. And it's like, yeah, I, you're right. I, I can totally own up to the fact that I don't have the experience, the life experience. I haven't been through X, Y, and Z. Um, but maybe I do see things a little differently than you do, or maybe I'm willing to open up a little more than they are, you know? And so just accepting that and, and wanting to bridge the gap, I think is so important. You know, I think it's really important. Sophie, you are so amazing. That. Now I am going to oh, ask you, you oh, I'm going to ask you my final question. Sophie, what is your emotional support? My emotional support, although this may sound cliche, <laughs> is conversation. I think whether it's with myself, you know, speaking things out loud, writing things down in a journal, having conversations with me or having a conversation with someone else, or processing what's going on in the world. I think letting my emotions out and communicating them and having right. conversations about the issues that impact us so deeply is emotional support. I love that. I love that answer because it's so true. Thanks. And I'm such a firm believer in stories and conversations. And, and that is how you know, we, we can connect to one another. That's how we can bring change to the world. And it's by using our voices. And I'm so happy that you are here right now, not afraid to use your voice. And you are now being the voice for the voiceless and bringing courage and strength to them to then eventually have them feel at a place where they feel safe and comfortable to use their voice. Well, Al, it's because of trailblazers like you. You oh. do this every single day. You are setting the precedent and an example for young people everywhere to be vulnerable, to share their stories and bring voice to their issues, their struggles, but also their passions. And so I just thank you for creating such oh. an important space and for doing what you do because the world needs you more than ever. Well, listen, I need your youth. So, you know, I... <laughs> That's totally. what I need. But I will say, I really do appreciate you saying these words because, you know, the 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 narcissist in me loves it, but also the insecure child in me loves it because I don't feel, you know, every day I wake up and I, I turn to my husband and I'm like, oh, I can't believe like, I, 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 I you know, it, I'm not where I want to be in my life. And like, I thought I would be yeah. here. And I thought, you know, we always sell, set these false expectations, right? It's all fear, you know, um, of where we should be in our, in our reality. And like, what is reality at some point, you know, what is age, what is a moment, you know? Um, and I think that when we connect with one another and we have conversations like this, you know, I hope that one person at least will hear this and go, wow, I love what Sophie's doing. I'm going to start my own table talk at a university, or I might do this at a high school, or you know what? I may do this at my retirement home and set up a table talk because it doesn't matter what generation we're coming from. It's about having that conversation and that open dialogue. And that's when change is made because when we're quiet, it's not made. It's we, we live in pain, you know, and if we can just not be in pain, you know, for one day, I think that that's a, that's a huge success. So you know, that's where it's all about. But I just and we may not solve all the issues in the world, but hey, it all starts with a conversation. 
It all starts with a conversation. Well, thank you so much for having a conversation with me, Sophie. I just love and adore you, and I can't wait to squeeze you in person. I like feel like I, I already wait. have. Like so, it's weird. <laughs> me too. Me too. But thank you so much for having me.